All right. Well, welcome, welcome. You've made it this far, right? Happy Family Fifth Sunday. So for those of you guys that are new around here, every fifth Sunday we shut down the older kids department and we bring everybody in here and we say that church is about family and church is something that you can understand even if you're not a grown-up yet. And so we want to do our best today to keep things short, right? And to keep things understandable in a way that's going to be beneficial for even a child. Like, I know I need it dumbed down sometimes. And so I, it, it's our goal today that we speak simply and plainly about things so that you can understand them. Kids, hopefully all y'all got one of these. Miss Micah made them. They're really cool. Some of them have crayons. She didn't give me crayons. <laughs> They're washable crayons, parents. That's a good thing. And then inside this little handy dandy zipper pack, I don't know. I can't unzip it. There's, there's a bunch of goodies in there, including a worksheet that actually has to do a lot with what we're talking about today. So there will be stuff on one side about a tree with its roots and its fruit, and we're going to be talking about that and how our Christian lives are like that. And then on the other side, you'll see a big heart talking about how out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you can color inside that and think about your heart and everything that, that's in there. There's also a big boat. And we're going to talk about boats today, too, but I won't get into that just yet. So today we are continuing in week two of our study of the early church. And you know how last week I said we're going to start in Acts, but we're not really going to be in Acts for like a long time. We're going to skip around a lot. Well, it's week two and we're already not in the book of Acts. We're in the book of James. And so our series around the early church, we're calling it Called Out. The church was called Ecclesia the people that were called out of the culture, the people that were called out of their ways of life, the people that were called out of everything that they knew to be normal and called into a completely different reality that we call Christianity. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the early church, people that were called out of an old way of living and ushered into a new way, completely blessed by the Lord, but completely disorienting at the same time. Took a lot of instruction, took a lot of trial and error for them to get it right because they were living in a totally new universe. So we're talking about people that are called out. So last week we talked about the book of Acts, the birth of the church, and how people devoted themselves to, say it with me now, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Yep, there you go, and the prayers. So we talked, I think I said it like 38 times last week. And then the memory verse was like the same thing, and everyone's like, I know. So they devoted themselves to those four things. The apostles' teaching, we say it around here. We say the word matters here. That's our mantra. The fellowship. And we talked about how fellowship is so much deeper than food, fun, fellowship, you know. And then we talked about the breaking of bread and of prayers. And we saw the foundations of the church being laid. And so as we continued to read in the book of Acts over the past week, it didn't take long into the building of the church to see persecution come along. In chapter 8, we see the first time that persecution really concentrates itself and the Christians begin to scatter. And then over the next chapters, you see other secondary, tertiary scatterings that are occurring, pushing people farther and farther out into more and more distant lands, and eventually, by God's sovereign wisdom, carrying the gospel throughout the Mediterranean. But it didn't feel good for the gospel to be spreading because it was spreading through the scattering of persecution. So we read all the way up through chapter 14, 
and verse 22, where the writer says, Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. They said this, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's what they said to them. They're pretty new to this. And normally, like, when you're new to something, like if you're new to a job, they give you, like, this three-month, what do they call it, OJT, and they don't really count things against you, and things are a little bit lighter, and, you know, everybody just basically cleans up after you. But how much OJT do these guys get? All of a sudden, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is the world in which the book of James gets written. Sometimes we read James and we say, there's a lot of practical advice for living in here, and that's the truth. But the audience of the book of James are the 12 tribes of the dispersion, written in an environment of persecution. As we study James today, my hope is that we who are also living in a sense of exile might better hear the voice of God through this book. So our main point today, we always do this thing where we say, if you don't hear anything else, if your insomnia is finally coming to an end and you're going to fall asleep in like five minutes, here's the main point of what we're talking about today. Our main point is that our words reveal what's in our hearts and that God's words have the power to transform our hearts. Let me say that one more time. Our words, even if you're tired, even if you haven't eaten, even if there's all these extenuating circumstances, in some way, our words are revealing what's in our hearts. And God's words have the power to transform those hearts. So, let's jump into James chapter 3. We're going to talk about the first 12 verses of the third chapter of James. But, before that, let's talk about Ranger Rick. Y'all know about Ranger Rick? You remember Ranger Rick? I never read it growing up, but, I mean, look at that little thing. And he's so cute. Little harvest mouse. I guess he's cute there. If he's cute in my house, that's not cute in my house, actually. But Ranger Rick is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And now that we have a boy in the house, it makes me want him to be old enough to read Ranger Rick and to know about it because God's world is a big place. It's beautiful out there. There's lots of really cool stuff that you can see in creation. Last week, we talked about that kind of thing um, in, a, in a pretty big way. We talked about the fact that you could see the International Space Station transiting orbit last Thursday and Friday. And it was really clear enough where you could actually see that. And there really are people from our country doing spacewalks on this thing that's way out in the middle of outer space. And then we talked about the creatures that live at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and how God has developed such diversity in places that we've not yet even explored in our own planet and how it just makes you feel so small and how the world is such an amazing place. That's why I like Ranger Rick. Ranger Rick's pretty cool. West Virginians would say that the world is what? Wild and wonderful, right? And so today I'm going to talk about one of those places that's pretty wild and kind of wonderful too at the same time. It's called the Darvaza Gas Crater. Have you ever heard of the Darvaza Gas Crater? It's located in Turkmenistan. I think we have a photo of it up here. Look at this. Just in the middle of nowhere, this place that's just constantly burning. So the Soviet Union used to have this part of the world under its control. And so back in the 70s, the Soviets were looking throughout Central Asia for the same thing everybody else in the world was looking for, oil. And they're drilling for oil, and they're looking 
for this commodity that can, who knows, I don't want to get too political, but they're out here and they're drilling, and then all of a sudden, as they drill in this certain part of Turkmenistan, all of their heavy equipment begins to like rattle under their feet, and everything collapses in on what they find to be a chamber of natural gas. They weren't looking for it, but here it is, and the unstable rock gives way, all their heavy equipment falls down there. Apparently no one got hurt, but it's the Soviet Union, so maybe they just didn't tell us. Who knows? <laughs> and so here we have this giant pit of natural gas, and they say, what are we going to do with this? Well, they don't have the equipment. They weren't looking for natural gas, and so they can't really harvest it because they're not prepared for it. And so what happens whenever you have these extra resources is oftentimes you just flare it off. You light a match, you wait for it to burn, at least you can see the natural gas now, which kind of puts you out of danger, and you just wait for the supply to trickle down so you can keep doing your work. So that's what the Soviets chose to do. Let's flare this stuff off so we can keep drilling for oil. So in 1971, they light it saying, you know, a couple days, maybe a week, and that was 48 years ago. This picture was recently taken. It continues to burn to this day. Look at this next photo here. And there's a man standing on the edge. You see him in the top right there? That's in the middle of the day. Just completely and totally, ugh. For 48 years, this fire has raged. And today, we're gonna to talk about a fire that has burned for much, much longer than that. And that's the fire of the tongue. You may have noticed already, if you're reading along with us in the book of James, that he's alluded to this fire already. Chapter one. Verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Y'all hear that? Be speedy when you listen, and slow as molasses when you talk. But aren't we a culture that flips those two? Don't we just have so much social media coming in, so much unending news cycles, so much need for the gossip that we're just talkers way before we're listeners, myself included. So James 1.19 already weighs in on this before we even get to our text. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How do we reach this bar, church? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's why we're here. <laughs> With that being said, let's look at our first point here. Just three points for today. And I promise it's quicker today. It's fifth Sunday. So the first point that we have is that words are powerful. They bless and they curse. Same mouth, almost the same time, blessing and cursing coming from that. So that's where our text picks up today. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 3. God's word says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Aren't you thankful that God puts that part in there? We're all in process, church. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, then we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and driven by strong winds, their direction is guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Great kid sermon, right? For every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So we see words are incredibly powerful. Our God has chosen the vehicle of words to bring the entire universe into existence. Everything you've ever seen that has ever existed was created by words from the mouth of God. Every atom in our bodies, every molecule of like hot, fresh food waiting on you at lunch after this, spoken into existence by the power of God. And those words aren't just relegated to creation. The writer of Hebrews tells us that not only does creation come from words, but that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're sustained today by his word. And also the story of the Bible and the weight of the salvation of the word, world rests on words. Three of them, really. Pretty powerful words. It is finished. Declaring the fulcrum on which salvation swings. In the annals of human history, we see that words are pretty powerful too, right? What do we remember when we study history? Rhetoric. We remember powerful words from powerful people and how history seems to swing on these inspirations or lack of inspiration, honestly. Look at FDR. He says, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Electrifying, course-shifting words for our country. Words can lift nations' eyes during wartime when they're tired and when they need to just push a couple more times, listen to Churchill. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth will last for a thousand years, that men will say this was their finest hour. Stealing their spines for the next push, the power of words. A little closer to home, our own words in our own homes and our own circles can be incredibly powerful. With them we bless and we build up. And then using that same tool, we can burn things to the ground. You see this, it's like a whole theme that runs through the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is just full of, of advice on words and, and where they're coming from. So look at verse, chapter 18, verse 21. Solomon says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We also see that words not only have the power of death and life, but they have the power of wounding and healing. Proverbs 12, 18. 
There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, if we're honest, almost every single one of us can think back and remember when someone said something to us that just like cut us to the quick and that stayed with us, honestly, and that, that really changes our mentality. Our kids, I mean, just think about how we prepare our kids for, for stuff like that. When words cut, what, how, do, how do they react? They say that thing, sticks and stones may break my bones, but we're, come on, really? Is that true? Like, we should just like ban those words. Those are not good words. Bad words, guys. Words of aggression that injure relationships and cut through our trust in others. They're dismissive words that can cause us to believe lies about ourselves and feel isolated. People can use words in a way that's just plain empty. Broken promises, unrequited love. Think about the words that people have used as tools against you. Now it'd be easy to just say, oh man, a bunch of victims, look at us, let's all join a support group. But we've all used the same words as offensive weapons too. We've been the offenders just as much as we've been the victim. And if we're honest, I've said things that are careless and unhelpful to people that are in this room. And I could say, I was tired, things had gone on for a really long time, I skipped breakfast, I skipped lunch. Y'all know that word hangry, right? Hangry is like that catch-all term, like, you know, oh, you know, I said that, but my blood sugar was low, so, you know, whatever. But we see that that's, that's, that's not enough. I've sought forgiveness from the people that I've spoke, spoken careless, carelessly against. I, I attempt to seek forgiveness, and I hope to all of you guys that there's not an unconfronted instance like that for me. Uh, but we all use our tongues in ways that are careless and destructive. But we see that words have the exact opposite effect at times, too. People can use words to build great things. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided. Think about that. Guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See the examples that James gives here. They illustrate the power of speech. If it's controlled well, if it's cultivated, it's effective and wonderful. But if it's not controlled at all, or just controlled poorly, that the disaster can be enormous. So let's look at another point that James makes here. And this is really where we're going to camp out. Point two, words preach the truth about what's in our hearts. It preaches the truth about what's in our hearts. Skip up to verse two again. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Talk about a high bar. If you can bridle your tongue, then you're perfect. Completely and totally perfect. And you can say, well, I think I'm pretty positive and encouraging, right? But if you can completely control the tongue, then you have arrived, so says James. But what's the point here? Are we all trying to just be perfect in our own strength? Is that the point of Hagerstown Church? Is that the point of the story of Scripture? 
Let's find the keys and turn that and become perfect just because we did it ourselves. Matt Chandler says it this way when he looks at this text. James isn't saying that if you simply learn how to control your tongue, then all your struggles just disappear. But he says rather the work of taming the tongue drives us into the epicenter of all that's wrong with us. It opens the door to our heart. And that's where the work happens, right in the midst of the heart. So James says that same thing in verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine figs? James sounds a lot like his big brother Jesus. Look at Luke 6.45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For, here's the one. If you're circling, underlining, highlighting, this is it. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You hear that? That's a law of the universe, biblically speaking, right here. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why our words are so powerful. Not because scientifically speaking, we can create these vibrations that communicate meaning to other animals around us, like, who cares? It's because they're opening doors to what's actually in the depths of our hearts. And if we listen to these words, then they'll reveal things about us and our walk with the Lord that we're not going to find anywhere else. You might think, oh man, do I want that? Do I want to open that door, really? Oh, oh wow, this is not really like an uplifting sermon to me. But think about what goodness God gives us. What a gift that God gives us in knowing what our hearts actually are. Don't we remember from the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, by God's grace, he gives us a window to know some of it through the power of the tongue. You don't have to wonder today if your heart is full of anger. You don't have to wonder if jealousy and bitterness are setting in against that person. And you don't have to wonder what's going on in your heart at all because your words reveal it. So think about it. Diagnostically speaking, for me, if I'm consistently snippy, if I'm popping off at the mouth every single time, but I just say, oh, I'm, I'm kind of tired, then regardless of the circumstances, it's evident that my heart is angry in some sort of way. It could just be that you're under pressure at work, you get sleep deprived, your kids don't have the right sleep schedule, and it's, it's not like those things are unimportant, but don't let those excuses distract you from what may really be going on in your heart that the Lord wants to show you. So maybe your heart is full of anger and you just manifest it with aggression, honking and throwing the blinker on and like tailgating the people, or maybe you're a little bit more like how I would manifest it, and it's a little bit more reserved. You got that, that fear of man thing going on. You've got that, um, what do they call it? Passive aggressiveness. And that's how it just tends to leak out. Maybe you're just a killjoy. Where's that coming from, you know? Anthony shows up and he's like, look at my new iPhone 11. And I'm like, yeah, look at all those cameras. How goofy looking is that? <laughs> like, how much did that set you back, Anthony? Good for you. Is that, no, let's talk seriously. Is that good stewardship? Really? Is that how we want to spend? 
Like, can't you just let somebody have a little bit of joy? Look at my new ride. Look at how great that is. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a Ford person myself. Like, why do you just want to chop people off at the knees if they're celebrating? Or what if you're that person that wants to contribute to the conversation and then that other person says, actually, and want you the fact checker. I can be the fact checker. What's going on in my heart in that moment when I'm like, you know, and like wanting to be the smartest guy in the room? Why is that happening? Why do I need to jockey for position when we're just sharing life together? It's revealing something about my heart. We're all seeing little bits of where we are in relationship to the Lord every time that our mouths open. So are you angry this morning? Are you jealous of somebody, what they have, where they're at? Is your identity set in Christ? Or do you feel like you incessantly have to one-up people? That you've got to take their joy down just a little bit? That you've got to be like just a tiny bit smarter so that people value you? Where are you at this morning, church? Where's your heart at? And where are your words showing them? So we verbally tear other people down. I verbally tear other people down because my identity is at stake. If I'm finding my identity in the fact that I may be a tiny bit smarter than you and I can tell you some ancient Greek word from this one thing that meant that one other thing, my identity is found in being wise and being intelligent. I think you're going to keep me around because I'm the smart guy. But see, when we take our identity out of that, we remember that we're a son of the king, that we're a daughter of God, primarily. Then we can lay those weapons down. Then words don't become blunt objects. Words become tools to build others up. And identity in Christ changes how you see the world. And just think about that a second for a minute. Like, for me, I, I've thought about this over the past couple of days. Have I truly been set free to rejoice in other people? If somebody's got a real reason to celebrate, am I selfless enough to enter into their celebration and to be truly glad for what God does for them? Where's my identity? So we see words are powerful, and they're showing us something if we'll only listen. Finally, we'll see that our words, when we find ourselves at that moment where we see change is needed, our words are only transformed by his words. So remember that main point from the top? Our words reveal the contents of our hearts. And God's word is the only thing that has the power to transform our hearts. Ms. Micah read this earlier. Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See where it started? It ended in edification and praise. It ended in a healthy church building each other up and preaching the gospel to one another. But where did it start? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly started with his words. Look at the example of Christ. Just let this wash over you, church. Philippians chapter 2. This is what healthy interaction looks like. This is what us getting together 
and our life groups and actually sharing God's word and actually walking with each other in ways that will produce sanctification, this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like trying to be the brainiac. It doesn't look like trying to have the most friends. It doesn't look like trying to have the cleanest house before people show up to the life group that meets in your house. Where is your identity rooted, church? Stepping on my own toes right here. I don't want people coming over to a dirty house. I want you to think that I've got it together. So I got a mop. Again, you know, where's my identity at? But think about what healthy interaction looks like as we read this text. So then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count one another as more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Here's where the tongue comes back in. After all of that, after all of the obedience, after all of the Christ-centered living, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So people have overflowed in their obedience to the Lord, confessing Christ. Also, Jesus is demanding submission at the last day, and their tongues are confessing out of an overwhelming presence of God's judgment. Yes, he's Lord. And their hearts overflow with that. To the glory of God the Father. What a strange, mixed, beautiful message. Every tongue will confess out of the overflow of either blessing or judgment that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you build your identity on anything other than Christ, or if you have been building and you come here and you've got like eight Lego blocks built up on something else that is not Christ, then you're going to find that your words are hateful or arrogant or dismissive maybe a mixture of all those things, maybe something that's not exactly that, but you'll be able to, to smell it almost. Where, where are our mouths showing us that our hearts are at? Think about it. And then think about the fact that Christ has given us this message and this insight because he loves us too much to let us stay in that space. The promises of God say, that my God will complete every work that he has started in you, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. And I am of the opinion that he's using this insight today, and that he wants to use this insight in your own life to say, how is God bringing this work in my life a little bit farther by looking at the fruit of our mouths? So what do we do with all this, right? New paradigms, 
new information, reminders of old information. What do we, what do we take home, church? Two things. Confession, repentance. It's not rocket science. It's the same stuff we talk about all the time, but just perennially important to confess the sins that God brings to light and to repent of them and to receive God's grace and to be assured of the fact that he will pardon you again today. So first we repent to God and then we confess. So we confess our sins that that we've seen to God, but we take the step of confessing those sins to other people. How many sins of the tongue only affect ourselves? And what sort of, of collateral damage is being caused by these patterns that God may be bringing to light in your own life? If I had to guess, you're probably like me, and the people that you hurt are in that first concentric circle right here at home. How do you confess? How do you receive God's grace? How do you seek reconciliation right there? And you don't just say, God, I'm angry. Help me to not do this anymore. I promise I won't do this anymore because I feel bad. Where are we doing a lunch? That's not how this works. You can't just say, God, I'm sorry. Person, I feel bad. I really never want to do this again. Because guess what? That's not how life works. We all know that. Faith works. Faith doesn't just feel and believe. Faith works itself out as it gets itself closer and closer and closer incrementally to the image of God. So, believer, brother, sister, how are we taking the steps to not just say, I felt bad about that, but I'm going to become closer to the image of God because that's what God deserves and that's what you deserve as an image bearer. How do we do that? It's a good question, isn't it? Because sometimes we don't know. Sometimes I get to the point and I say, I've done this, and I did this yesterday, and I did that on Thursday, and then I did it like four times last week, and I know it's bad and I felt worse every single time, but I don't know where it comes from. Right? Isn't that how things really work? You say, this is a thing. I know this thing is bad. I have no idea where it came from. Help. What do we do with that? Well, we can't just say it to ourselves. That's why God forms the church. That's why these life groups are so important. That's why the relationships that you build in your D groups, if you're in one, are also important. Not so that you can just go report that you read your scriptures and feel a little better when you leave, but so that you can say, I'm struggling with this. I have no idea what to do about it or where it even comes from. Have you ever even seen something like this before? Help. Apply the scriptures to my life. Show me what the Bible says about this because I can't really see myself that well. That's where it comes down to, church. How do we confess before the Lord, being honest with ourselves, and then how do we actually move past it? How do we actually get the word applied to that? Sometimes it takes a little humility. Sometimes it takes finding friends. Sometimes you might look around in a place like this, and maybe you've even been here for a couple months but you don't see a person where you could feel comfortable coming up to them and asking them about that just yet. Well, we're, we're trying to create avenues for you to develop those relationships in which you would feel comfortable doing that. We want D groups to be a place where the word really in an intense, pared down kind of like boom, 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 get it and go kind of way is important. And we also want life groups to be a place where you develop a place that 
you're free to fail and you're free to confess those failings and you're free to move past it maybe just a little bit and then slide back and then come back because it's a place of grace and a place of soft landings. So if you look around the room today and you say, who would I even talk to? Then maybe that's the Lord saying, let's bind ourselves together in love. Let's develop those relationships even if they're difficult and let's do the hard work of being more like Jesus. Even if that means you maybe don't look as put together as you want to look. So as we come to the communion table today, let's think about what has God showed us about our hearts through the overflow of those hearts. We have to think about things that we bring to the Lord and we also have to just know and accept and have the faith that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Faithful, faithful, faithful. He will cleanse us of that unrighteousness. And you may not even feel like it, but he will. He's promised. So here's this communion table down here, reminding us of the sacrifice of Christ, reminding us of the journey that he's put us on and the gas that he puts in the tank for sanctification. He doesn't just save us and say, hey, you're on your own. This is a reminder that he's sustaining us and bringing us into that image of God by his own grace and the same grace that saved us. So as we partake in communion today, let's examine our hearts. Primarily, we put communion out here um, as a sign for our covenant members, but it would be so foolish to say if you're not a member here, but you're a believer that you didn't participate. Please, come in. Celebrate the reality of what God has done for us. But think carefully. And if you're not a believer, just do me a favor, do us a favor, and, and, and just let it pass. There's no shame in that. We're celebrating in communion right now the reality of what God does in somebody that believes over time. The reality of the fact that we're new creations in Christ and that we're trusting that he's bringing us further up and further in. And so the step for us that, that wouldn't believe, that don't believe today, our step is, is not to say something that's not true yet. Our step would be place your faith in Christ. Our step would be repent of your sins. Our step would be come talk to somebody that you're already sitting beside. Come talk to me. Come talk to these two guys on the front row. I mean, they look pretty knowledgeable. Come talk to anyone in this room and we'd be happy to just answer your questions. This is a place that is open for doubters, seekers, skeptics. We want to talk about it. And we want you to know enough that the Lord is, is going to continue to draw you in. So your step this morning is not come receive this. Your step is turn from your sins. Ask the tough questions. Let's pray. God, we thank you for truth from your word that reminds us that we really are all a work in process. God, we thank you for the gift that comes from seeing a little bit of our hearts and seeing where you need to keep working on us, Lord. Lord, help us to remember that our identities are firmly, first and foremost, rooted in the fact that you've saved us, that we're your children, that no one can snatch us out of the hand of the Father, Lord, that you're the one that's working on us and it's by your grace and strength that we'll enter into the kingdom one day.
not by just trying a little harder, Lord. Help us to remember that your covenant faithfulness is what keeps us and not our efforts. Help us to consider our sin in light of the fact that you'll still, still, still be faithful to forgive. And as we approach this table this morning, help us to remember the weight of glory that came on the cross. That grace that's sustaining us for the next step. In our suffering, Lord, let us look at the table and to remember that you're not a man that wasn't acquainted with suffering. That you emerged from suffering and temptation stainless. God, help us to look to you at this table and to just worship you for being good and to trust you as we leave this place and we walk our faith out. We pray this in your name. Amen.